James chapter 5. I want to go back to that subject of prayer and start in James chapter 5 and 13. I'd want to continue on the same theme that I was on two weeks ago about prayer. And we talked specifically in Luke 18 about the woman who kept appearing before the judge, you know. I want to go back to that subject of prayer and start in James chapter 5 and 13. You'll find in verses 13 through verse 18, the word prayer or prayed is used seven times. Seven times. So it obviously is emphasizing prayer as it relates to or as it concerns us as Christians or as believers. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man of subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins." We're going to key in tonight on verse 15 and 16. We're not interested as much in healing as we are about the prayer of faith. It just happens to be the subject that's mentioned in verse 15 and 16, or at least in verse 15. So again, prayer is mentioned seven times in these verses that we read here tonight, and especially in verse 16, we'll come back to this in a moment, the word effectual fervent. Effectual fervent is one Greek word. And it's the word from which we get the word energize or energy. I think it's pronounced energeo or something like that, but we call it to be energized. The meaning of the word is found like in Ephesians 2. Remember, we were once children of disobedience. We walked according to the course of this world, and the Bible says, and we're by nature children of disobedience. And it describes about the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And the word worketh is the same as effectual fervent. And the picture you get is that the devil was working overtime to manipulate and turn you into his course of life, to keep you rebellious, maybe keep you a little bit religious, have a taste of religion, know a little bit about God in Sunday school. But your life is mainly about doing things your way, on your schedule, on your terms, in a way that you will have to be judged by a righteous God at the end of your life. And so the word worketh there is a continual effort to bring something forth. And that's what this word for effectual and fervent means. You see, not everybody's prayer, and even though the Bible speaks a lot about prayer, in the last days we're to watch and pray, or we're to pray without ceasing. Or we're to be instant in prayers, Romans 12 talks about. Pray one for another. 
or than Luke 18.1. We saw last week, men ought always to pray. Jesus said, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may have grace and mercy in time of need. Sermon on the Mount, ask and it shall be given unto you. So over and over and over, prayer is an inescapable subject in the Bible. They did it in the Old Testament. They do it in the New. It's what Christians do. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And church through the years typically has gotten together to have prayer meetings. We ought to pray because the Bible says we ought to pray. So we get together in order to pray. But the problem seems to be when it comes down to the kind of prayer that works, prayer that gets results, the prayer that does a work, it stays before the throne of God, an effectual fervent prayer. It seems that a lot of people really aren't praying to get results. We're praying because we should. We're praying because we ought to. We attend a prayer meeting because sometimes our guilt loads up on us and I'm not doing it. So we go and, and put in our time and listen to other people pray. Or while other people are praying, we'll watch them. They got their eyes shut. You know, watch and pray. So you watch people while they pray. I mean, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings and I have watched and prayed. And I have seen people just looking around. You know, it's not like they're there to get results. That whatever subject is that we're praying about, it's not like we really are in earnest trying to move God to do that. It's just like we're doing it as a, what we do. Hospital prayers, for example. A hospital prayer is not always a prayer which we're trying to get results as much as it is a way to verbalize comfort to the person in bed. And now, oh God, we pray that thy comfort would come upon this lovely soul who served you so well for these years. What people often say in hospitals when you get through praying, not every prayer now, but so many of them, is the folks say, well, thank you for such a nice prayer. It's not, are we trying to get that to work as much as that sounded so good? Or ball game prayers. You know, I used to dread I turned down one time, they asked me to pray before a game, and I wouldn't do it. He said, would you pray tonight before the ball game? I said, no. <laughs> aren't you a preacher? <laughs> he didn't say that, but you could hear the wheels running. Aren't you a preacher? I am, but I'm not going to pray before a ball game. What do you pray? Which side are we for? It's not like you're praying because you're trying to get results as much as you're trying to accommodate a system which it ought to have prayer included in its festivities, and somebody ought to pray before all big conventions or political campaigns and all. You know, there's always somebody that prays. You know, before the NASCAR, and now our preacher from so-and-so will come up. What do you pray before a car race? I listen to them pray. In thy great name we pray and stuff like that. They pray, Lord, we've asked you to bless these drivers today as they're driving down the road. Maybe they're in such out of sorts with God. Maybe they're under some kind of a judgment or curse. Oh, that couldn't be. It could be. How do you bless that? Lord, bless this curse. <laughs> I never could fear. What would you pray? If you had to get up there and pray, what would you pray? Because if you only said, Lord, we thank you for this day. Let nobody die in Jesus' name. People wouldn't like that because you didn't say enough. There should be more words than that. You don't just get up there before your food and, you know, at a great convention. And now our brother Hamlet is going to come and pray over our food. Father, we thank you for this food in Jesus' name. Amen. I know what the leaders would say. 
Is that all you're going to say? That's what I'm believing. That's what I believe. I can believe for that. But if I have to pray for China, Russia, pray more for the United States and Israel. But I think a lot of times prayer is a formality that is required of us. We engage in prayer. You know, my daddy used to say, Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Jesus Christ our Lord. That was a Catholic prayer. And my vacation Bible school prayer was, Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds that sing. Thank you, God, for everything. Now, I wouldn't say it that way. Our family would get down and for the table. Dad, me or you, me. Thank you for the world, say, thank you for the food, thank you for the birds, thank God for everything. Amen. And we'd eat. Because it didn't matter. It's just something we're supposed to do. And my daddy would say, bless the Lord. Amen. If he had stopped and said, now, Lord, tonight we ask you in the name of Jesus, I would have thought, what's wrong with my dad? If I had said, and now, Heavenly Father, for this food before us tonight in Jesus' name, he would have thought, what's wrong with you? Because nobody does it that sincerely or that earnestly. And we're so used to it that without realizing it, we've just come to accept that as just part of life. And we like to hear people pray who preach sermons while they pray. I was in a full gospel businessman convention back when my hair was brown in some other state or maybe another country. And this fellow came up to pray and he was, oh, somebody said, where do you hear this guy pray? And boy, he was eloquent. Now this fellow could wax eloquent. And he would pray and so on, and he'd get everybody excited. And then, but now I'm thinking, looking back on that, I wonder if he really believed all of that, or was this just a thing you do to impress other people? In other words, how much does God see when we pray, when we kneel, stand, sit, drive down the road, wherever we are, doesn't matter what posture you're in. I wonder how much of what comes out of our mouth God sees coming from an earnest, desiring heart that we really are in earnest about this and we really are here to get results. Remember the lady last week that came before that unjust judge? Well, this lady came before a judge with a need and she was not about to take no for an answer. Now, the judge didn't care a thing about her. He wasn't interested in her needs. He just happened to be the judge who was in charge of the dispensing of the law. And that's who she came to because that's where her need was. So he could do something about her problem. And you know the story. She came before him and it was, yeah, 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 yeah. And he just disregarded her, but he couldn't because she was there the next day. It's like she was saying, what I'm believing for, I'm not going to give up on. I didn't come here to entertain myself and feel good about me asking for something. I came here to get results. My words may not be the best words that good praying people could use, but they're earnest words. They're sincere words. They came from my heart. And I'm not going to leave until I get what I came for. I don't think she came in every day making the same formal request. I don't think that's what God wants us to do. You know, he speaks against vain repetitions repeating the same prayer over and over, like some religious folks do. He wants us to ask, and you shall receive. He taught, Jesus taught, he said, when you pray, believe, you have received. 
And you don't know many people that really do that. I don't care how much they've been taught. I don't care. I don't know how many meetings they've been to, how many notes they've taken, tapes they've listened to, etc. You don't know many people who, when they pray, believe they've got it. Willing to live as though they have something which hasn't happened yet. Because people think you're strange. To believe that you are in possession of what you ask for, even though, with, like this lady, what you're asking for hasn't happened yet, but it's to live like you've got it. Jesus is not some unjust judge that we have to badger to get something from. Our much praying doesn't move him. He said that. You do not get the ear of God by much labor in prayer and by great emotion. It's faith. It's when you pray, believe you have received it, and you shall get it. That's what he said. That's what the Bible said. And yet, many people still believe that if we just keep on bombarding heaven with the same request, eventually we can move God like she moved an unjust judge. And Jesus said, God is not like an unjust judge. You cannot move him to do something because you prayed about it or because you bother him or keep praying about it or because you have an all-night prayer meeting. There's nothing against an all-night prayer meeting because there's some things you really don't know what's going to happen. Like Peter in prison, they didn't know if God wanted to get him out or keep him in, so they just continued in prayer, and God got him out. But when it comes to promises and things in the Bible, when you pray, believe. Believe that you have received, and you shall have it. It was interesting that in that same story with that lady and the unjust judge, the very next thing that Jesus referenced in Luke 18 and verse 8, he said, nevertheless... I mean, having said that about that story, the next words were, nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And you go into a study of faith because you've got to put it all together. There are many pieces that fit just like a puzzle. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You can't see it, but the fact that you're living like it's so gives evidence to the fact that you believe it. Faith is the certainty of things coming to pass that God has promised that you have believed. Faith acts like something is true even though there's no visible evidence to its truth. And the story is simple, the Lamb's Book of Life. Who's ever seen it? How do you know there even is such a book? How do we know that down through the centuries we're not being misled by a myth? How do you know the Bible's true? just been recopied so much that just copies of copies. How do you know it's true? Who said it's true? What makes it true? Well, I can't make it true. It doesn't matter to me tonight who said it. I believe it's true. That's all I've got. Somebody once said, well, you take that Bible away from you Christians, you wouldn't have. Well, no, we wouldn't have anything. What would we have without the Word of God? Opinions? They don't work. The Bible said one time, a man thinking himself to be wise became a fool. And we are the kind of people who just humble ourselves to this word. And we believe that Jesus said, if you abide in me and these words abide in you, you shall ask. It's prayer. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. If you're willing 
to believe God so much that his word is life. It's a living word, and it's like a two-edged sword. It's the absolute thing that God watches over to perform. If you're willing to live like that's true and gather it in and taste and see and, and, and hide this word in your heart, God said it is you that when you pray, whatever you ask for, you shall receive. And again, you don't know a lot of people who really believe that, but it is true. Now, in James chapter 5 again, you know, he begins this book in chapter 1. He begins this with your invitation to ask. In verse 5, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask in faith without wavering. That word faith again, let him ask in faith without wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God, because in verse 8, he is described as an unstable man. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. There is nothing in this man's life when he prays, that he's sure of. He's not convinced he's going to get it. And James 1 says, if you're going to ask God, you've got to ask in faith. You've got to believe the thing you're asking for is the thing you get. Even though you don't see the thing you're asking for yet. <coughs> Folks who say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, it doesn't take faith to do that. There's no faith required in me believing I've got a Bible up here and I can see it. I don't have to believe you're out there tonight that when I got here, somebody would be here. I can see you here. Some of you might have to believe to get here, but that's another story. But he said in James chapter 1, if you're going to ask God for anything, if we're going to pray and get together and pray about somebody or about something, we need to find out exactly what we believe. You really believe God will do what you're wanting? How can you pray a prayer of faith if you're unsure about what you're praying for? Do you think by just praying about it makes it work? I think a lot of folks at church do. Oh, let's get a hold of God about it. Well, before we go to grabbing hold of God, we need to find out what God has promised us in his word. There's still a verse in the Bible that says, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, that's assuming there's no sin that's blatant in your life because God heareth not sinners. you got to put pieces together. But assuming that it's a righteous man's prayer or a man in right standing with God, he tells us that if we ask, we shall receive. Now, if he meant what he said, then no wonder in 1 John 5, this is the confidence that we have in him. When we come together to pray, we know what he has promised. We have located his promise. We have found his word. We are convinced. How about persuaded? We are convinced that God will do that. That's not just something written in the Bible, but that's something that God has promised, and that is promised to me. All his promises are yes and amen, so that's his promise. So when we get down to pray, we pray according to his word, because that's his will. Do you believe that what he says in the Bible is the will of God? You have to believe that. Because if we're uncertain about that, then our whole life, our whole walk is unstable. It's like he said in James chapter 1, a, a wavereth is, is the word doubt. 
Wavering is a picture of what doubt is. To waver is to be tossed this way and to be tossed that way. That's what error does when it comes into our life. We're no longer to be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. People who never get settled on anything but have their favorites they like to listen to and, but don't ever really know what they believe but depend on somebody to tell them what they ought to believe, they will waver. And James clearly says if you waver and you're not sure, you won't get anything from God. No matter how hard you pray, no matter how loud you pray, no matter how long you pray, let not that man think that he shall receive anything from God. When I came across this subject years ago, I think the first thing I ever shared in my life was in a meeting with other men in our church at James 5:15. I was just old enough in the Lord to still be smoking. I knew very, very little, but this I believed. I couldn't explain it well, but I believed it, and I've tried to share with them as I understood it. I remember that. And down through the years in my life and my experience, nearly 40 years now, I have found that there's no more subject more absolutely essential for Christians to grasp a hold of than the subject of faith. Jesus said when he comes, will he find faith? Peter sank because of the littleness of his faith. Faith, faith, faith. No wonder they said to him, Lord, increase our faith, because that's what Jesus talked about all the time. In his own hometown, he could do no mighty work, and he marveled at their unbelief, and then he went about teaching in Mark 6, 6, and teaching in all their villages, because that's how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing. And sometimes you hear it, you don't quite get it, so you say it again. And it's a little bit clear, but it's not fully there yet, so you say it again. And you keep saying it until the light comes on, and you begin to say, you know what, that's it. That's when you get persuaded. You're not persuaded because you were there 40 years ago and you heard it. This is 40 years later tonight. This is 20 years later tonight. It's not what you got 20 years ago. It's what do you have tonight? The prayer of faith is the one thing that moves heaven, moves God to respond to you. It's not emotion. It's not sincerity and urgency of your need. It's the prayer of faith. In fact, over in chapter 4, he said in verse 3, you're asking for things and you're not getting it because you're asking for the wrong reasons. You're asking for evil reasons to amuse yourself with the things that you're trying to get God to give you. So back to verse 15 again. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. I wonder why a lot of people are still wavering a little bit about this. How many times have you prayed for somebody to be healed or you've had people pray for you to be healed and you wondered later why they didn't get healed or why they weren't healed? Remember what Jesus said about that woman? God may take his time in answering your prayer or manifesting your prayer, but you must believe when you pray that you have it and hold fast. God knows the righteous who cry unto him day and night. He knows they're holding on to him. And he will avenge them speedily, he said. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? You'll find a lot of churchgoers and church members who really do have good intentions about being socially better people than what we're seeing in the world today, who can add religion to their life and be really a better acting person. 
but it's not like this is the great need in my life. And even in the church, it's not like prayer is the exercise of my faith to get results. I want to be delivered. I want to get out of debt. I want to get away from this chronic sickness or illness. I want, I want, I want. And you stick before God. You stay before the Lord. You find out his word, and you let the Holy Spirit clear this up, give you a revelation of his promise, and make you to see it so that you're persuaded about it. And prayer is simply a formal release of your faith to God and say, it's in the name of Jesus, Lord, that I receive what you promised. I want to thank you for it. Then you begin to give thanks. For what? For the answer. But I don't see it. You don't have to see it. It's coming. How long that woman had to stay before that judge, I don't know. But Jesus said, when he comes, will he find faith? She had it. She didn't give up. He told one woman that delivers his children's bread. Why would he give it to dogs? She didn't quit. She said, I don't doubt that. I'm putting it in Kentucky words. I don't doubt that. I probably am a dog. I'm probably the lowest form of humanity in this room. However, I know what you've got. Just a crumb of that bread you're talking, just a crumb. The stuff that falls on the floor out of the side of the mouth of people who don't even appreciate it, give me one crumb of that. The stuff the dogs are eating off the floor, one of those crumbs will heal my daughter. That's all I need, just a crumb. Jesus said, your daughter's healed. My servant lies at home sick of the palsy. I'll come and heal him. You don't have to come to my house. It's not necessary for you to come to my house. All you have to do is speak a word, and whatever bothers my servant will be healed because you're master over demons and devils, and everything you speak against has to come to pass, so you say the word. You know what Jesus said? He said, I haven't found such faith in all of Israel. People who just need a word. And yet we've been taught the word how many years? And still we balk and we wonder at it, but then if we dissect our lives, look how distracted we've gotten in the last 30 years. Man, our children have grown up. That's been a struggle. I've watched this myself. We were pretty super spiritual when they are little, and then they get big, and suddenly we're having troubles. And that's another sermon. But we get more involved in our business, and the golden years begin to approach, and you begin to back off and take your time, ease up, and take your you know, next thing you know, you're just kind of loafing along, but you're not going anywhere spiritually. And we pray, and then we realize whenever we're praying, we're not doing well. Oh, I can form the words and say, Father, in the name of Jesus. I can speak the right words, but my heart condemns me because I know I'm not really believing this. I really want it, but I'm not real sure that he wants to do it. And yet he said he would. Let me tell you what some of the commentators say. I, for your sake, look at my computer. Boy, I am learning how to use a computer. These are just comments about verse 15 from real deep scholars and theological people, but it's to show you that no matter who you are and how gifted you are in knowledge or achievements, book writing, studies, honors, recognition, Nobody I've ever known has all the truth and has it all put together so there are no mistakes and no flaws. God has given lots of great men in the church. One of the greatest, perhaps the greatest of all, was Paul. He wrote, what, half the New Testament. 
And he himself said that the Bereans were more noble-minded than any of the other people he met. You know why? Because they heard what he said, but then they searched the Scriptures to see if what he said is right, and he commended them for it. Well, some people would get mad today. Why would you want to check me out? Well, because it's the right thing to do. I'm unwilling personally myself to believe what anybody says about anything without searching to see if that's true or not. If they speak not according to this word, it's because they have no light. Now, that means that some of these great scholars couldn't have had light concerning James 5 and 15. Now, one of the great ones was Matthew Henry. This is not an attack on him, but just to show you that even as gifted and as devoted to God as this man was, it didn't mean that he had light on something that God would give more clearly in the New Testament. Example, this is what he said about verse 15. This is part of what he said. In the times of miraculous healing, now right off the bat, you know this. There was a time that we had miraculous healing, once upon a time. Not anymore. That's where it starts. So your mind is conditioned right away. Well, that's not for today, as he says. In the times of miraculous healing, the sick were to be anointed with oil in the name of the Lord. Expositors generally confine this anointing with oil to such as had the power of working miracles. Now, the Bible doesn't say that. It was assumed that people who anointed with oil and prayed over people were people who had gifts. But it doesn't say that. It just said, call the elders of the church. And it said the prayer of faith, not gifted people. Doesn't it? Who can pray the prayer of faith? Well, whoever can pray the prayer of faith. And he said, and when miracles ceased... This institution ceased also. It never was an institution. It was a promise. Okay, so if I read this, and I'm a Henryite, and I'm into Henryism, and I take as gospel whatever I read in this wonderful man's writing, and he was, I trust me. If I just follow him, then I read this, and I assume anybody that studied as much as he did had as much knowledge about theological things as he did and was above his peers in his understanding of the Bible. If this is what he said, then that's where I'm going with it. And they look at somebody who comes along like me in a big building like this, fancy as we are, and he says, now what could you possibly know better than him? Well, I'm not trying to know anything better than him. I just want to rightly divide the word of truth. You decide if it is. You decide if it is. But he talks about when miracles ceased, this institution ceased also. Now notice in Mark's gospel, we read of the apostles anointing with all many that were sick and healing them in Mark 6, 13. And we have accounts of this being practiced in the church 200 years after Christ. When did it cease? Did it cease in the days of the apostles? They didn't live 200 years, unless John's still on the Isle of Patmos somewhere. He might be. I don't know. I don't know. What's it to you, he said, if he lives until I come? Remember that? I don't know. I don't know. We have accounts of this being practiced in the church 200 years after Christ, but then the gift of healing also accompanied it. And when the miraculous gift ceased, this rite was laid aside. Who said? If these gifts were given to the church, were they or not? 
Did God set in the church or give gifts to the church? Is the church still on the earth? Then the gifts are still here too. The only thing that's cut them off is unbelief. That's because we have listened to people just very subtly talk us out of them. I don't think he was trying to talk us out of it. I think that's just where he was. When you are sick and in pain, it is most common to pray and cry, Oh, give me ease. Oh, restore me to health. But your prayer should rather and chiefly be, Oh, that God would pardon my sins. I wrote on the end of what about healing? The whole thing was the prayer of faith would heal the sick. The next verse says, if he has committed sins. So, but again, if you're not careful how you listen to other people or you read what other people write, you'll get confused. Or take another writer, Mr. Adam Clark. He said this, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. That is, God will often make these the means of a sick man's recovery. But there often are cases where faith and prayer are both ineffectual because God sees it will be prejudicial, that is, leading to premature judgment, to the patient's salvation to be restored. And therefore, all faith and prayer on such occasions should be exerted on this ground. If it be the most for thy glory and the eternal good of this man's soul, let him be restored. If otherwise, Lord, pardon him, purify him, and take him to thy glory. Well, don't lay hands on me yet. That's not what he's talking about in James 5. He said, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church or else go to heaven. It doesn't say that. It says simply the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Personally, if you're a writer and you're not fully convinced of this, you will say that. And the people who follow you and may follow you because of your accomplishments, they will believe it because a man of stature couldn't be wrong. Well, it might be that he's not exactly right. Mr. Barnes, a good Calvinist, said this. And Mr. Clark was an Arminian. I put Mr. Clark on the left side and the other boys on the right side. Barnes said, the prayer offered in faith or in the exercise of confidence in God, that's what it is. It is not said that the particular form of the faith exercise shall be that the sick man will certainly recover. That's just a lot of words to say it should not be said that the man's going to recover. And here's why I say that. But there is to be unwavering confidence in God, a belief that he will do what is best and a cheerful committing of the cause into his hands. We express our earnest wish and leave the case with him. The prayer of faith is to accompany the use of means, for all means would be ineffectual without the blessing of God. What he is saying is you should pray if it be thy will. But that's not what James 5 said. James 5 said, Is any sick among you? Let him call the elders of the church, and they will anoint him with all in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. And if that doesn't work, then pray if it be thy will. He doesn't say that. But why do you have to add all this other stuff to it? It's because that was not their experience. Now, there was a time in church history, it was often called the Dark Ages, and there was not much light. God had light somewhere. But there were ideas formed in man's mind that everybody became in agreement with. 
And it was generally agreed that while God once did miracles in the early church, he must not be doing that today because we don't see much evidence of it. Therefore, those things have passed away. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's just what man has said. And then one of the worst is a Greek dictionary that I use a lot. But just to show you how you can get distorted and twisted or that the author of this was not one who understood healing, he said this, the basic meaning of the word E-U-C-H-E is wish or vow. It's only used three times. It's used once here. He calls it wish. When I wish upon a, you know, that type of wish. When it is addressed to God, it becomes another word from pros, P-R-O-S, toward, and E-U-C-H-E, wish. When we pray to God, we wish that he would intervene to permit something in our lives that we feel is proper and right. That's what we wish for. We want the right thing to happen. For the Christian, every prayer ought to be the result of his faith in God through Christ. Okay? In the New Testament, faith is the acceptance of God's revelation for man and the means whereby that revelation for each individual is appropriated. A Christian's wish is for God's will to take place in his life, even in the case of sickness. You ought to see how I mark my book up here, how I put X's and footnotes. It is of such a wish coming from faith that James is speaking about in regard to a sick brother. In praying for the sick, we must exercise faith that God is able to heal. And we are free to express our wish for the healing of the sick. It's okay to pray for him. However, once we have expressed the wish, we must allow God to do as he pleases and in that find the satisfaction and faith. I don't think the man knows what faith is. Faith is believing that what you ask for, God has done. It's believing that God is. Faith is counting on God to do what he said. How could this man have faith? How could you say, all right, Father, in the name of Jesus, you said if you ask anything according to his will, he bore our diseases and carried our pains. You said your word is medicine to our flesh. You said you remove all sickness from the midst of us. You said, you said, you said, you said, you said, you said, you said. I'm putting you in remembrance. Now, this is what you have promised. This is what I have read. You've shown me this. Now, I ask you to do whatever you want. It doesn't take any faith to do that. There's no faith at all in that. That's a resignation to doubting. I don't know. He may, he could, he might. I mean, if he wants to, it's fine with him. Let's just leave it up to him. Why don't you do that about getting saved? Just say, Lord, I'm a lost man. If you want to, if you don't mind, save me. If you want to, thy will be done. If you don't want to save me, Lord, send me to hell. Nobody would pray that. Nobody in the right mind. God doesn't want to approach him as though he's never said anything to us that we can believe. And we should just go to him and say, you know, you're a great God and we love you and all that. And we got some things down here that we need done. And if you want to do it, do it. And if you don't, well, you know, we, we love you anyway. You don't even have to read your Bible to pray like that. You don't have to know anything about God. Just know that he's in charge and that he's sovereign and then don't believe anything. Oh, 
Oh, he could. He's able. He has. We read in the Bible where he has and that he's able, but we're not sure he will. And there's a certain amount of comfort that a lot of people have in that because if he doesn't, then you're not really disappointed. You didn't expect him to anyway. If you expected him to, you would have said, Father, in the name of Jesus, I receive from you. You know what Jesus taught? What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe. Believe what? Believe you have received what you've asked for. It may not look like it, and it may be a while before it actually comes to pass, but you must believe you have it. Jesus asked the question, when he comes back, will he find people believing? How many people give up their so-called faith because it took too long? How many people have mouthed these words? Well, I prayed, it's been six years, I don't, and then they say this, God wouldn't take that long as though they know him. Who said he wouldn't take six years? How many years did he take with Abraham? How many years since prophecy about the restoration of Israel to their land? How long ago did he prophesy that? How many hundred years ago did he prophesy that? And it came to pass in 48. God's not in a hurry. He's doing things. Things are coming to pass. In the meantime, you trust him as though what he has promised, you have it and walk as though you have, as though you alone are trusting him and not things in this world. People are getting away from this. 30 years ago, boy, we were just talking about it all the time. We don't talk about it much anymore. Our kids don't understand it. Maybe that's why I'm preaching about it, so the kids here will get it. Here's a good one from the People's New Testament. I'm not saying anything against the people who wrote this. I'm just saying that this was the light they had, but this is the influence that they exercise upon people who take this particular New Testament to be gospel. In the early church, when miraculous gifts were imparted by the laying on of apostolic hands as a sign to unbelievers, one of these was a gift of healing. In most early churches founded by the apostles, some of the elders would have this gift. There is no more reason for the descent of this gift to our times than of any other miraculous power. We don't need it. Did you know that we have no need for gifts of healings? <coughs> Did you know that there is no need for God to pour out his grace and power to heal bodies today? You don't need that. Well, our government's going to get you a health care plan. It's going to cost your arm and maybe one of your kid's legs, but is that going to be your God? Will that be where we take a breath and go, now and go to the hospital? Maybe this is all part of the big plan, test. There's never been a time in all of history that God has ever ceased to be God. There's never been a time he has lost any of his power or his might. But the church has largely been talked out of that. Oh, he did it once, but he won't do it again. In the early church, they had this gift, but now we don't need this. We don't need healing. We don't need the working of miracles. We don't even need a word of knowledge. We don't need a word of wisdom. We don't even need faith. <laughs> I think, have you folks read the book at all? And I know you're much smarter than me. I'm, I'm a complete ignoramus compared to you all, but you could do better than this. 
this passage then describes what was peculiar to the early church. The sick were anointed by the elders with oil, a symbol of the Spirit, which effected the healing. The oil? I thought it was the prayer of faith. Does your Bible say the prayer of faith heals the sick? It didn't say the prayer of oil. The power of oil. You could dip them in a bathtub full of oil. You could immerse them in oil until they were slick. And they could still be sick. The Geneva Bible, this ought to be good. This goes back a long way. He shows peculiarly to what physicians, especially we must go when we are diseased, that is, to the prayers of the elders, which then could also cure the body. They could cure you. For so much as the gift of healing was then in force, then in force. And they could take away the main cause of sickness and diseases by obtaining healing for the sick through their prayers and exhortations. It's not what it said. It's not what it said. It said the prayer of faith will heal the sick. Well, but some people had this special endowment and others didn't. Well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about Mark 16? These signs shall follow who? Doctors? These signs shall follow the elders? How about a sign following a housewife? Can she be a believer? These signs shall follow those who believe. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. They shall take up serpents, scorpions, you know, two-legged kind. No, spiritual. If they drink any deadly thing, you need that one today too. You ever look on the label of Diet Pop? <laughs> drink any deadly thing, it shall not harm them. That's to all of us, isn't it? They shall lay hands on the sick. These signs shall follow believers. Are you a believer? We can lay hands on the sick. There are gifts in the church in case you want. God does a sovereign gift. You can call the elders of the church. There are several. There's more than one way that God has opened the door for us to be well. It's not just one way all the time. It's not as some of these men, bless their heart, are saying, was then enforced. Mr. Gill, here's another good Calvinist. He's a strong Calvinist. Mr. Gill is between Mr. Clark and Mr. Barnes. He said, the elder members of the church who have the gift and grace of prayer. Now, there's no such thing. Now, this man's way beyond me, but there's no such thing in the Bible as a gift of grace and a gift of prayer. Unless you want to say that God, when he moved in your direction, outpoured his grace out upon you, and that itself is a gift. I can accept that. But prayer is not a gift that some people have and some people don't. If I don't have the gift of prayer, I'm out. I don't have to pray. It's not my fault. The elder members of the church who have the gift of grace and prayer and are not only capable of performing that duty, or rather officers of the church are meant, particularly pastors who are so-called in Scripture, these should be sent for in times of sickness as well as physicians. Well, now, why would you call the physician? It's in case the pastor can't. Well, now, people at church do it all the time. Okay, uh, pastor, whoever, pray for this man, anoint him with oil, and he gets his oil bottle out. He says, all right, we're going to anoint him with oil, and takes that off and anoints him with oil, or dabs a little dab will do you. 
tell you the truth, if the man doesn't feel better right away, then they go to the doctor. Because there's no such thing when you're not feeling well as waiting on God to do anything. If he doesn't do it right away, we're going to do something else. To which I would say, if that's already in the back of your mind, you're going to do that, you're wasting your time praying because you're not believing. You're not convinced. You're not settled. You have no confidence in the fact that this prayer will heal you. Maybe the pastor doesn't have very much faith. Well, it could work both ways. Isn't there a verse somewhere in the Bible that says, seeing that they had faith to be healed? Isn't there a verse somewhere that says, be it unto you? According to your faith, maybe it goes both ways. Maybe the person coming up for healing complained about not getting anything, didn't bring anything with them to begin with. You can lay empty hands on empty heads and, and you don't get anything. When the gifts of the Spirit are operating, that man will probably get healed on how long he'll keep it because he has no way to resist the unclean spirit. When he goes out, man, it'll come back. He doesn't know how to resist it because he's never been taught, never was interested in it. He feels better, and we all get excited about it, only to hear in a week from now, two weeks from now, that he's back where he was. We hear that all the time. It's a spiritual thing we're talking about. The devil is never discouraged, never discouraged, never gives up. But Christians do, and he knows they will. That our faith comes with a calendar. And if he doesn't do it by a certain time or a clock, if he doesn't do it by a certain hour, we're not going to sit here and be a dummy. We turn away from God to do something else because we're not sure he's going to do it. I'm telling you about the prayer of faith and the level of faith that is in the church today for a simple thing like healing. And healing's a big subject. I know that. And a lot of people wrestle with this and stumble because of it. That's why we talk about it a lot because it is an issue. People are spending fortunes to get better. I heard on the news tonight. Was it going home we heard about getting a splinter out of a kid's finger? Kid was playing and got a splinter in their finger, and the mother couldn't get it out, so they took them to the doctor or hospital emergency room, I guess, and they got the splinter out. It cost $800. I would have said, you know, we need to have a little conference here. $800 to get it for, what, two minutes, three minutes, she said. It wasn't long. Three minutes of work at 800 bucks? No wonder health is such an issue today. John Wesley, in his commentary, he said this. Having anointed him with oil, this single conspicuous gift which Christ commanded to his apostles retained in the church long after the other miraculous gifts were withdrawn. They were never withdrawn. God never said that. Never. Indeed, it seems to have been designated to remain always. And St. James directs the elders who were the most, if not the only, gifted men to administer at. This was the whole process of physic or the profession of medicine in the Christian church till it was lost through unbelief. Now, that last part I will agree with. But these gifts weren't withdrawn. One gift didn't last longer than the other gifts. If they were withdrawn, they would have been withdrawn at the same time, all of them. They come from one spirit. You don't take part of it out and part of it and leave some of it in. The gifts of the spirit are still in the church or they're all gone. Now, I believe they're still in the church because I've seen it work. And it doesn't work because we read, study, pray, or preach a lot. It works because we believe. 
But the basis for believing is the Word of God. What does the Bible say? That's the only thing that you and I can believe is whatever the Bible says. So, having said that, look at verse 16. And remember this. Concerning faith and who you're listening to and whose words are affecting you more than other people or who you choose to single out to believe, Paul said, but continue thou in the things which you have learned and has been assured of. Notice this, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Would the Apostle Paul ever mislead his people? No. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But continue you, you continue in the things you have learned and become assured of. The word assured is the word for believe. The things you've learned and become convinced of. You continue in that, whether anybody else does or not. Who taught you that? Do they live that themselves? Do they practice that? Are they sincere about that? Or is it just a radio sermon? Is it just a superficial testimony about something that'll get me attention? There's a lot of people talking. There's a lot of people teaching. Let me tell you something else about your faith and who you listen to. You need to feed yourself. You need to feed yourself on things that encourage you to believe. I don't need to listen to all the things that make me question the word or this or that. I heard a statement years ago, beginning to get a little bit of this, that some things that people want to tell you about really don't edify you. That is, they don't promote or encourage your faith. And personally, I really don't want to hear it either. I'm getting to that. You turn on the radio, there's Rush Limbaugh or who other, you know, a hundred other people on there trying to stir us all up with the conservative viewpoint of politics and point out that the Democrats are devils and all of those kind of things. And none of that encourages us to believe God. In fact, it makes us be a little bit on the other side. It makes us suspicious. I don't need somebody to tell me everything wrong with everything in America. I just need to get up in the morning to learn that. I don't need to hear people talk about it. And you and I, and I've been guilty of it, you and I don't need to sit around and talk about it either. Corruption is everywhere. We know that. Ugliness is everywhere. You can, I mean, we see that. We don't need to talk about it and glorify it. Just like when you give a testimony here, you don't need to give all the details about your symptoms. You don't need to tell how much blood was shed or how much you gagged and coughed all night. I don't need to hear that. For a weaker person, sometimes the devil paints pictures in their mind. Well, if it happened to somebody like that, it would happen to you too. I don't need to hear all the gory details about how awful it was. You tell me after it was over how God delivered you from it. We don't need to talk about all those things. I want to surround myself with people who are encouraging. I don't mean bragging. I don't mean being flattering. I just mean people who are encouraging, who have good things to say. Speak that which edifies. In fact, that's one of the Christian ways of life, that we are to encourage each other. 
speak the things that do edify. You know how God felt about doubters, don't you? Numbers 13 and 14, the 12 spies into the land. He sent them over into Canaan's fair and happy land, and they came back. And remember what they said? Ten of them said, oh, it's everything God said it was, except he didn't tell us about the trouble that lies over there, about the giants and the walled cities and the iron chariots down in the valleys. We're like a bunch of grasshoppers in the sight of these giants, and there is no way we can survive in this land. You know what God said? And the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? Now, he could say the same thing about the church today concerning his promises to deliver us. The things that we whine, cry, and are so concerned about, money, job, healing, tomorrow, education, bills, all the things that we just struggle with. Listen, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will, this church, will these people provoke me? And how long will it be ere they believe me for all the signs which I have showed among them? And I've wrote, or today, all the promises that he has made. Look at all the promises God has made. Nearly 8,000 promises. You think of it. There is not a condition, a situation, or a circumstance you can face in this life that God has not given you a promise concerning if it's an adverse situation or circumstance. God has made promises to deliver his people, even delivering you from all evil, from all fears. No evil shall befall you. What about that? He should give you authority. No plague shall come near your dwelling. How about that? He'll give his angels charge concerning you. Or concerning you, he will give his angels charge, and they will keep you in all your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. No weapon, he said in Isaiah 54, no weapon formed against you will prosper. And yet we go on through life, just like in James chapter 1. We don't even take this to the Lord. We don't even approach his throne to get this to come to pass because we're really still, after 30 years, some people are still not convinced that he'll do it. And those of us who are and who say we are are viewed as what, dogmatic, cultish? What do they say about people who believe God today? That we're a cult? That we're legalistic? I would to God, if that's where the results are, I would to God we all were. Truth of it is, we're all human beings, and we all struggle in some way or another with something. But the longer we seek God, the more we seek God, the more the solution to all of our struggles come. Until at the very end, it's a peace that passes understanding shall surround us and keep us in all of our ways. Didn't God say, thou shalt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because... See, there's a because after whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Powerful convincing that he'll do that. Because once you take a step out there and you burn your bridges behind you, it's God or else. That's what worries people about us or about you. Is that you live like what God said he will do. And because we're not sure that he will and people applaud us for being wise, we surround ourselves with all the little things that just in case God doesn't do what he said. I know what happens when you 
burn your bridges and you don't have any insurance and you don't have this and you don't have that. And I know what people say. I know what they say. I know they said it years ago and they would still say it. But my servant, Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully. Spirit of faith. Verse 16. An effectual, fervent prayer. In James 5 and verse 16, an effectual, fervent prayer that your Bible talks about there, is an active prayer, not a dead one. Put it that way. It's a prayer that is living and working and not just a word spoken and forgotten or a dead one. And he said, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. This is what Paul wrote. Remember he said in Colossians 1, he said, I warn every man I meet, Teach and warn, whereunto I labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. The word worketh and work is our word effectual fervent again. It's that energize. Think of it. God on the inside of his people is making them, while they're even trying to be distracted with the world, he's in there getting their attention. You go to church one night, you're about half asleep, and you got a lot of things going on tomorrow, and all that stuff is coming up, and there you are sitting there, and God on that night so gets a word into your heart that no matter where you go tomorrow, no matter what you're thinking about, you can't get past this word. Praise God for that. Because this is the word that delivers you and brings you into favor with him because that's the word you begin to rest on. You rest your case with God, and you say, Lord, you have said. And he delivers you with that word. Not everybody has that happen to them, but you do. And he blesses you. Listen to this. I want you to turn to this one. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13. Here's our word, effectual, fervent, in another form, but very similar. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh in whom? Well, does it do anything in people who hear it, but don't hold fast to it and don't believe it? It's a dead letter because it's not active and it's not working. It's just a word you heard. You might even memorize it, but it doesn't alter or change or affect the course of your life because you don't remember it. It's not there like it ought to be. You see, in closing tonight, what all this is about, about the prayer of faith, it means this, that when you pray, pray to get results. Pray like this is very important for me, Lord. You pray in the morning. If you pray for your family, you pray for your children, you pray for your grandchildren if you have any. You think about them when you're praying. You don't want them to perish. You don't want them to live in such a way now that they're scarred in some way the rest of their life. When they grow up, they can't be married well because they fooled around and were promiscuous and loose and had no morals. And one day they get married and the same free spirit wants to go outside the marriage and they're tired of one person. They're just ruining their lives now before the day comes they want to settle down. And so you pray, Lord, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. I pray that you will direct our steps. 
put a word in front of us so that we don't have to live with all these scars. I know you forgive. God's forgiven me of every vile thing I've ever done. There's a number of scars in my life, and I'm continually reminded about certain temptations the devil brings. You don't want to go there because that's affected your life for many years. And God is cleansing and healing. I praise God for all of that. But I want to close with one thing. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 7. The Bible says that the effectual, fervent prayer of a what kind of man? Righteous man availeth much. Not just availeth, but it has great power or force. It has a great work. The question is, because the devil will use this, who's righteous? There is none righteous. The Bible said not even one. Jesus was. And he was the righteous one whom God accepted in place of ours. And as I said Sunday, it's because of his righteousness that we're able to stand before God as though we'd never sinned. We must never forget that we're counted to be righteous. We're considered righteous on the basis of our belief in Jesus as the one who is a mediator between God and man. And because of him, I can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and so forth in time of need. I can do that because of him. But when a question is asked, who's righteous? Well, here's what it says. Be not deceived. First John 3 and verse 7. Be not deceived. He that doeth righteousness is righteous even as he is righteous. Let me ask you something. Righteousness is a state you are in by virtue of God's accepting of you. He forgave you of your sins, right? He cleansed you. He brought you out of the mire clay and so forth. Gave you faith to say, Lord, I believe. And he accepted you. He accepts you. And now he says, there's a life I want you to live as my righteous ones. I want you to live according to my word. In this way, you demonstrate not only the righteousness of God in selecting you, but also the power of his word in your life as you live by it. Be not deceived. Don't think that you can just believe you can confess with your mouth what the Bible says. You're all right. He that does what is right is right. Does your Bible say that? He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. Who inspires you to do right? the king of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Or you can say, well, I'm not as bad as a lot of people. I don't drink, smoke, and do drugs. I don't live with somebody. I don't watch a lot of bad stuff. I don't drink overly much. I mean, yeah, come on now. I mean, God must surely see that I'm not as bad as you're an unrighteous man because you're thinking that by your own merits and your own goodness, you can find the grace with God, and it doesn't work like that is a sincere release of the old life of letting go of what was and of coming to God and humbling yourself before the mighty hand of God and accepting what he gives you and giving to him your will and in earnest living this life knowing that for the rest of your life you're going to have a lot of needs and God says I'm the need meter come and you shall receive but when you come believe 
Treat me like I am your source. I am the one who must deliver you. Lay it all aside and make Jesus Christ your life. And it'll work. Amen.